The scripture reading this morning comes from First uh, Timothy chapter two. I'll be reading verses one through seven. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to continue today in our study in the book of 1 Timothy. So you can start getting there um, if you want to open up in your Bibles. Scott just did our reading this morning. But let me just say that if you're visiting with us this morning, I'm, I'm grateful that you're here. And let me, let me explain why. Not just because we get to show you the love of Christ and you get to gather and worship, but Today, I want to say something. We believe, as the pastors and elders at Valley Center Community Church, that God has given us a very specific calling. Paul tells us what that calling is. We are called to shepherd the church, but more specifically, he says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So, the work of a pastor and an elder is ultimately to equip the saints to fulfill the mission of God in this world. Our mission is to be and make disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not just something that we do, but something that we all engage in. Now, why do I tell you that? Why do I take the time to, to share that? Well, when we come to the Word of God, like we do every Sunday, because our understanding is the calling to equip the saints, when we come to preach the Word— our hope is to preach it in such a way that as we walk through the Word of God, you don't come away from it saying, oh my goodness, I could never have come to that. That's, that's wow, that's great, but I just, oh, I didn't see that in the text. Instead, our hope and our desire is that as we preach the Word, you would come away from it and say, you know what? No, that, that makes sense. If, if I had taken the time and slowed down and studied the Word for myself, I believe I would have seen those things as well. The goal here of coming to the Word of God is, is not for me to be able to preach in such a way that I uh, entertain you or that you walk away saying, oh, look at the, the wisdom of David and his communication skills, because let me tell you, both those things are extremely limited. But instead, for you and I to be able to say, when God speaks to us through his Word, if we slow down and if we listen, he has things to say. And so that informs my preaching, that informs my teaching, and today's text is going to be one of those places. As we work through 1 Timothy chapter 2, I, I pray that God would help you and God would help me to be able to look at this text and to walk away and say, God, your word isn't a puzzle to be unraveled. Your word is your word, which is to be understood and can be understood by us. Does that make sense? I hope that that's your desire as we come to it. So, with all that said, are you ready to learn? Are you ready to grow? We're going to go. We're going to get to it this morning. So, hopefully your Bibles or your electronic devices are already opened to chapter 2. 
We've looked at the first part of this passage in greater detail already. In fact, we've taken two weeks to consider that chapter 2, at least 1 through 7, um, informs us a lot about the idea of prayer, that, that we are to be a people, a church that is to pray. This is a letter written to a church, and one of the things that Paul says is that as we have the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're to be a praying people. But, but then he gets very specific in the text, and this is what we saw last week. He shows us that we are to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Prayer, broadly speaking, is communicating with God as one with whom you have an intimate relationship. But when you look at verses 1 and 2, you see Paul is getting very specific. He says, here's how you are to pray. One of the most significant things for us as a people of God who have the truth and who know it is to pray all kinds of prayers for all people, to not be limited in our scope, to not be myopic and just say, we only care about ourselves. No, God wants us to have a broader vision for the world and specifically for the lost. And this idea of praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, man, that was not something that would have come naturally to the first believers there in Ephesus. It wouldn't have come naturally because if you were a Jew, you never grew up praying for government officials. You definitely didn't grow up praying for Gentiles in the synagogue. You just didn't do it. You had a very narrow view of your prayers to God. And if you were a Gentile, you grew up praying to the emperor, not for the emperor. And so when Paul says, pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, he he wants us to understand that, that when we are saved into the family of God, yes, that is a special and unique relationship. But it's not something that we close ourselves off to the world. Instead, we are to continue to engage the world. And here's why, he says, we're to pray those kinds of prayers. Because this helps you live out your new life in Christ. When we pray in this way, all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, we are cultivating and nurturing the life that Christ has purchased for us with his blood. And we see that in verse 2. In verse 1, he says, here you go, pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Verse 2, that, it's a causal statement, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. If you want to live a godly and dignified life, if you want to reflect Christ to the world, you must have an inner peace and an inner rest from God. That's why he says, if we're going to live peaceful and quiet, that is tranquil lives, if we're going to have in our inner soul this peace, he says, we need to be praying for those outside of ourselves all kinds of prayers. Why does that help us? When we pray in that way we saw last week, it gets our eyes off of the immediate and gets our eyes focused on God. God, the one who's actually the king over all things. God, the one who holds all things together. Paul would say elsewhere, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by what? Prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Make your request known to God. Something happens to us. God has designed us so that when we pray, when we are focused in upon him, it changes us on the inside and that manifests in our behavior externally to the world. I might be the only person here, though, who feels this way. At times, that whole idea of a godly and dignified life, like, I want that. Like, I want to be in on that. But sometimes I give myself a hall pass. Do you ever do that? I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying I give myself a hall pass. Like, I'm godly and dignified up to a certain line. Like, somebody cuts me off, you know? Um, Somebody who is in the news is doing or saying something that I don't agree with. A politician is speaking in a way that frustrates me. And when my eyes 
are off of the Lord. Ultimately, I find that that whole godly and dignified life, sometimes I make excuses. I'm like, well, now's the time for me to be bitter. Now's the time for me to be angry. Am I the only one who ever does that? Or You're all a bunch of sinners. You're liars is what you are. You know that there's these moments. And listen, God's word says we don't get a hall pass on that. We do get forgiveness when we sin, but ultimately this is, look at this, this is God's desire for us because he says in verse 3, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. All this is pleasing to God. When we are praying in this way, when we are outward focused in our prayers and upward focused in our prayers to God, and it impacts our inner life so that we have that peace and that rest that manifests itself, that we're not giving ourselves hall passes, but we're actually living out the new life in Christ, it says that this is pleasing to God. It's pleasing to him. Like, what more do we need, right? Okay, I see now how serious this is. Like, I, I should take this seriously. This pleases God that my life would be lived in this way. And what happens, though, in today's text, what we're going to look at is the rest of this section through verse 7, is that we're going to look at, while all of this is pleasing to God, why is this good and pleasing to God? Like, why does God want us to pray all kinds of prayers for all peoples that we're living out our new life in Christ? Yes, it's pleasing to him, but right after the statement about it being pleasing to him, notice Paul does something. What Paul does is he gives us a window into a deeper understanding of who our God is and the motivations of our God. Let's pick it up in verse three. This, what we just talked about, is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Verse 4. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the what? Truth. Paul has just shown us what's pleasing to God. And now in this verse, he shows us what it is that God desires. It's right there in the text. Who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now that word there for desire, thalo in the Greek, it literally means, guess what? Desire. <laughs> like there, there's nothing magical about the word. It's communicating the longing or the intention of God's heart. So God has this desire. Now what ultimately is that desire? Do we understand what that desire is? Let me pull back for a minute and say, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ here today, and we come to a section of God's word where we are being told about something God desires, if God is our father, and we are his children, and as we sang, he's adopted us as his own, if he desires something, what do you think that says about us? If God desires something and you're his children, Whatever our Father desires, we too should desire. So do you think it's important that we're clear on what it is that he desires? I want to have the desires that my Father has. And so what is it that he desires? Before we get to that, I want us to understand the one thing. God's word uses human language in order to communicate to us what God is like so that we can comprehend him. But make no mistake... Anytime we are being told something about God, it's being used, or it's being spoken about in a way for you and I to help comprehend him. But is God identical to us? Is he like us or is he other than us ultimately? 
He's other than us. So, so God uses human language for us to try and comprehend him. But there's an element that things will break down to a degree. Do not think that God has desire for things in the exact same way you do because he's the creator, we're the creation, okay? I just always want us to keep that in mind. Because if we lose that distinction, ultimately, we can make ourselves say things about God that might be true of us, but not always true of him. And when that's the case, I'll point it out. But for right now, know that when it says that God desires something, it, it's being expressed to us as this is, this is the longing of his heart. This is what he desires. And what does he desire? That all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. To be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. These are not two different things, but are to be understood by us as two sides of the same coin. Being saved, seeing all people saved, and come to a knowledge of the truth are ultimately wrapped together. And it all begins, if we're to understand what he is saying there, is we have to answer the question, what do people need to be saved from? Because it starts with that. God desires us to be saved, but in what way are we to be saved? <clears throat> what do we need to be saved from? If you don't know the answer to that, then you're not going to really understand his desire. Well, if you've been around the church any period of time, if you've studied the word of God, we know what the answer to that question is. What we need to be saved from, the scriptures proclaim, is the judgment and wrath of God upon us because of our sin. That is ultimately what we need to be saved from. God must, because of his righteousness and holiness, punish and judge the sinner, which is us. We have rebelled against God. We have disobeyed him. And so Paul says in Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Humanity because of our rebellion, is under the judgment of God. So at minimum, when we say that God desires us to be saved, he is referring to the fact that we need to be ultimately spared, saved from God's just, righteous judgment upon us. But it is much more than that according to the scriptures. You know that, right? Because there was a time when we were not under God's just judgment. There was a time when God was not pouring down his wrath upon humanity for our sin. There was a time when we lived in perfect relationship with God. That was before sin entered into the world. And so ultimately, when it says here that God's desire is for you and I to be saved, he is talking in fullness about being saved from God's judgment, but being restored back in to right relationship with God. If you want to know the, the heart of God that's being communicated right here in this text, the heart of God, church, is to see humanity restored to him. And the reason why I use the word humanity is because God says that he desires all people to be saved. And I don't want to get cute about that word, in this context, and what's being said here, because all people were created in the image of God, because all people ultimately were made to be in relationship with him. Humanity is the word being used here to describe all. God wants all. God wants to see the, the fullness of his creation restored to him. And one day, he's going to do it. 
the book of Revelation shows us that day. This is the heart of God. If God desires us to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, what that means is that he desires us to be brought back to the place we once were. He desires to see us restored, to live the lives that we were made to live. Our God has a heart to see brokenness made new, to see that which has fallen into disrepute be brought back to its original condition. This is what is being communicated to us in this text. That's why he says he wants us to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants us to know the fullness of our rebellion. He wants us to know the fullness of our judgment. He wants us to know that we were made to live for him. He wants us to have the truth, which is we are to be one with our God, and we are not. This is the truth that he wants us, because God desires, God's heart is to see humanity restored to him. This idea of the restoration of humanity being brought back to God the idea of restoration, it resonates in every human heart. I know it resonates in every human heart because we look at all those shows that are on TV, all those renovation shows, the before and the after pictures. We long to see things that are broken down, brought back to former glory. A friend of mine and I were having lunch this week, and he was telling me that a little while ago, he went back to a house that he once owned. It was a home that he had invested a ton of his time and energy in. He had made the landscape around the house beautiful. He had painted the home. He had updated things in the home. When he sold the home, he's like, it was in the best condition it ever was actually when I sold it because I'd worked so hard and just then the landscaping had just started to mature. He said, I went back and I visited that home. And when I pulled down into the driveway, he said, I immediately saw all the landscape was dead. There was trash and boxes on the outside of the home. He said, I went and I pulled up and I saw that the garage door was actually broken. It couldn't even close. Paint was, was peeling off the walls. He said, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> I'm never going to go back to that place. Because when he saw it, he thought, this is not the way it's supposed to be. His desire was to see it be in its original state. How much more is the heart of God to say, I want to see the broken things restored? And this isn't just a New Testament concept. I want to go old school. I want to go Old Testament. I want to go old prophets. God spoke to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 18.23, and he said these words. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather that he should turn from his ways and what? Live. God's justice poured out upon us in his judgment. Like, listen, that's right and that's good because it's consistent with his holy character. But God says, I would desire to see people turn from their ways to return back to me. He expands upon in Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. He says the same thing. As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Whatever we're going to say about the heart of our God, what it is that he ultimately desires, we can't move away from the fact that he desires to see humanity restored back to him 
because we're not in that place. Humanity is broken, and we experience that brokenness every day in sickness and disease and death and war. But God's desire is to see humanity restored to him. But now we come to the question, why? Why? Why is this the heart of God? Why does he desire to see humanity restored to him? You know, we could look at that and we could immediately run to the answer. It's like because he, he loves us so much, he values us so deeply that there's something intrinsic in humanity that would draw him towards us. We're tempted to say that, but is that the answer that the Bible actually gives? Is that the answer that Paul gives in this text? He builds upon what he said previously, and here's how Paul answers the question. Why is this the desire of God's heart? He uses five simple words to begin his explanation. For there is one God. That's the very next verse chapter of chapter 2. For there is one God. What does that mean? What's Paul doing there? As Christians, we'd say, yeah, duh, there's one God. But what does that have to do with why he desires humanity to be saved? Well, church, this is not the first time, nor the last time in the book of 1 Timothy that Paul actually talks about the oneness of God. We don't talk about God being one all that often, but when it is talked about in the scriptures, there's a purpose behind it. Look at verse 17 of chapter 1. He says this, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. When Paul talks about God being one in that verse, when he talks about there only being one God, it ends with him saying, because he is only one, he's to be praised forever and ever. In chapter 6, verse 15, he says it this way. He who is blessed and the only sovereign, do you see it? He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Again, what does he say? To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God's oneness is tied over and over again. God's oneness, i.e. his uniqueness, his standaloneness, continually is the grounds for the praise and the worship of God. Paul is emphasizing to us that if you're going to understand the motivation of God, you have to understand that God alone is to be worshipped. He is to be glorified. And Paul gets this idea of the importance of God being motivated for ultimately his glory because Deuteronomy 6 4 through 5 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. Because of this, verse 5 says, you shall have, or it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Because there is one God, he alone is to be worshipped. He alone is to be glorified. Do you not see that every time God's oneness is referred to in the scriptures, it is to bring to your mind and my mind that the glory of God is the ultimate motivation for everything that he does. It's the driving force for everything that he does in the world. 
The prophet Isaiah says 40 in, in Isaiah 48:11, "For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another." When you read this book, you discover one glaringly obvious thing. There's only one God, and because there is only one God, only he is to be worshipped and made much of. At the time that Paul wrote these words, there were a pantheon of gods being worshipped by people. Every nation, every people group had gods that they worshipped, and Paul said there's a problem with that. The problem with that is this. There is not, there was not, there will not be a pantheon of gods. There was, there is, and there will only be one God, and that one God, he exists to be glorified and to be made much of. And you and I and every human being that was ever created was created for the purpose of bringing him glory. So when Paul says there is one God, he is telling us this, God created us for his glory. God created us to live for his glory. And so, when we consider God's motivation, the reason why he desires for all people to be saved, Paul says, for there is one God. Meaning, you and I were made to live to the glory of this God. And when you and I do not live for the glory of this God, he is robbed of glory because we are not functioning in the way that we were created to live. And if we're not functioning the way that we're created to live, then God isn't getting the glory from you and I that he has made us to give him. If you don't understand the motivation behind what God does is his glory, then you will fail to understand the heart of God. Why does he desire broken things to be restored? Praise God that it is driven by the desire to see his glory manifested in the world. Psalm 23, you've heard me quote this before, but it bears repeating. Over and over again in Psalm 23, we hear this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. What does he say next? For his name's sake. For his name's sake. Do you know what that phrase literally means? It means for the praise of him. He does what he does to make much of himself. Everything that he does in shepherding and caring for us is ultimately for his glory. The beautiful thing is that when God does things for his glory, guess who gets the good? Guess who's blessed when God does things for his glory? We do. When God does things for his glory, he, he does it out of his holiness and out of his righteousness and out of his perfection. And when he works out of his perfection and his glory, we receive the blessing. But make no mistake, we're not the part of the story. We're not the emphasis of it all. What God does, he does for his glory. God created us to live for his glory. And as I said earlier, why does he want to see you and I restored back to him? Because that was the purpose for which he created us. But the beautiful thing about the text is we have a God who doesn't simply just come and say, here's the desire of my heart, and here's why I want that, is to see you live for my glory. But ultimately, he comes in the next part of the text, he tells us, God just doesn't desire something for us. He actually makes it possible. He makes it possible for us to ultimately live again as he created us to live. It's right there in the text. Look at this. 
He says, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Church, this is beautiful. What this verse is telling us is that God made restoration with him possible through Jesus Christ. Who made restoration possible? Not you, not me. Jesus Christ. He's the one who has made restoration possible with God. God has acted to ultimately bring about our restoration. He doesn't just desire us to be restored to him. He's actually made it possible. We looked at this verse a few weeks ago. And there are two powerful truths that this text says. Number one, how many mediators are there between God and us? How many? One. That means if there's only one, who gets the glory for your salvation? He does. He's the one who brings about the restoration. And who is that restorer? Who's that mediator? Who is the one who intercedes on our behalf to resolve the conflict? That's what a mediator does. A mediator intercedes on, on another's behalf to bring about resolution to a conflict. Jesus Christ serves as our mediator. He enters in. He makes the way. And how does he resolve that conflict? It says right there in the text that he gave his life. He gave himself as a ransom for all. A ransom, we know, is a payment made in order to free a captive or a prisoner. It's, it's a, a price that must be paid in order to, to have somebody ultimately delivered from their captivity. Now, here's something very interesting. Today, when you and I use the word ransom, we think about somebody kidnapping another person, somebody who has value and worth. Like you kidnap somebody ultimately because you believe they're of such a value that, that a high ransom will be paid in order to free them. In the early 1960s, some of you who are alive would remember, I was not, but some of you who are alive will remember, Frank Sinatra Jr. was kidnapped. He's kidnapped by a guy by the name of Barry Keenan. It's a crazy story. But he was kidnapped by Barry Keenan because Barry Keenan had $240,000 in debt that he needed to pay off. And so he thought, I will kidnap Frank Sinatra Jr. because surely Frank Sinatra Sr. values his son enough that he would pay me $250,000 for him. So he kidnaps him. It's a calamity of errors. Long story short, look it up on Wikipedia. He kidnaps Frank Sinatra Jr. Sr. pays the ransom. Jr. gets released and Keenan eventually gets captured. That's how we kind of think of ransom today. Somebody has value, and so a ransom will be paid for that person. In this time and place, that's not what this is talking about. Yes, ransom means a price that has to be paid, but do you know who you had to pay a ransom for, the way it was used back then? You paid it for a servant, for a prisoner of war, for someone who in the eyes of the world did not have value and worth. And so when it says that he paid a ransom for us, that's not speaking highly of us, church. It's speaking of the fact that we are in a captivity that we can't get out of. And the value and the worth, it's not intrinsic to us. Instead, the whole point of this passage is that there is one mediator, one person who pays that ransom. The emphasis of this text 
is not on the people being ransomed. The emphasis of this text is how great and awesome is Jesus Christ, that he is that kind of person who would actually give his life for us. Whatever you say about the God that we worship and serve, you have to say that he's a God who desires to see broken things restored and that he ultimately has done the work to make that possible, but that we must never forget his motivation in doing so is always for what? His glory. If you don't understand that, you won't understand one of the great questions that is asked when you come to a passage like this. You see, some people would say, if the desire of God's heart is for all people to be saved, why does he not save all people? If the desire of God is to see all people saved and restored to him, why does he not save all people? Now, if you're wondering, why, how do we know that he doesn't save all people? Because the Bible says he doesn't save all people. The book of Revelation says that there are those who at the end of time go into the eternal fire and those who enter into eternal glory. Jesus even said on that day, there will be some who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and that? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. There are those who enter into judgment. Even Paul and Timothy, we're going to see it at least three times coming up in the book where, where Paul refers to those who have been cast out. One of the hard things to grasp in the scriptures, one of the tensions is God desires all people to be saved, but he does not save all people. In fact, when it says that it, Jesus gave him his life or gave himself as a ransom for all, the all there must be understood in the context of the whole Bible. Because if Jesus, if it's saying that Jesus paid his life as a ransom for all people without exclusion, then you'd have to wrestle with, well, why, does every, why do some people go to hell? If he paid the ransom, aren't they freed? Aren't the captives? And so all people there doesn't refer to the fact that that ransom of Jesus, while it was sufficient to cover the sins of the world, we know from other passages that Christ or that God only applies the work of Christ to those who put faith and trust in him and that faith and trust are a gift of God's grace. So back to the question. Why doesn't God save all people? The Bible does not give a direct answer to this question. There's no epistle, there's no letter that's going to come and answer this question directly. Instead, we can say a couple of things. One, we've already said, why does God do anything that he does? What's the answer? His glory. It's the motivation behind everything that he does. When God punishes a sinner out of his justice and righteousness, when someone violates his law and God punishes them for that, being consistent with his character and nature, that magnifies his righteousness and holiness. It's part of his glory. If he did not punish the wicked we could not say that he was righteous and we could not say that he was just. The only way that he can spare the wicked and the sinner, us, is out of his grace, which when he shows his grace and mercy, he also receives the glory. So whatever God does, he does for his glory. And so 
even as we wrestle through this, well, then why doesn't he save all people? We start with this. Whatever God does, he does for his glory. And instead of asking this question, if God desires all people to be saved, why doesn't he save all people? When you ask that question, what you're doing is you're putting God on the witness stand. You're putting God to trial and you're saying, God, give me an answer to this so I can evaluate whether or not I accept it. Who's the creator and who's the creation? And so in our heart and mind, we would say, if this is your desire, why don't you follow through with that desire all the way? And when we struggle with that, we come to two passages that I think help put us in our place and help us still trust our God. The first is Romans chapter 9. Paul said this, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Church, who's the potter? God's the potter. Who's the clay? We're the clay. Paul says, does the clay have the right to put the potter on the stand and say, prove yourself to me? Before you make me, before you do what you're going to do with me, I want answers. That doesn't stand up. And in the Old Testament, Job experienced tremendous trials and suffering and he struggled, and rightly so. There's nothing wrong with the struggle. But when he communicated to God, when, when, he, when he prayed his, his prayers in anguish to God, wanting an answer to those things that he didn't have an answer to, God came to him and just simply said, you know when the universe came into existence? When the planets were put exactly where they were and the stars in their place? You know, when, when the waters of the earth were, were brought up to a certain place and then they stopped. When the mountains were formed. Oh, Job, where, were, you, were you there, Job, when I did all that? What was God doing there? He was doing what Paul did in Romans 9. He said, listen, there are some things that I will explain to you and then there's other things that at the end of the day, you must accept me for who I am. And for what I do... Because I exist for the glory of my namesake. I created you for that. And it's not God coming and saying that ultimately we don't matter. No, because we are part of his creation, which he created to be good. But the better question for us to ask instead of, God, why don't you save all people? The better question to ask is, why does he save anyone? Why does he actually save anyone. It would be consistent with his glory that once we had sinned against him, to let us experience the justice that is deserved to us, to let us experience his just wrath, like that would have been consistent with his character and nature. And so instead, we look at it and we stand back and we say, wow. For the glory of your name, you saw fit to restore people back to yourself. He could have stayed on one trajectory and that would have been to his glory, but instead he chose to also show mercy and grace. This is the God that we have, a God who desires to see broken things restored 
His motivation for doing it is to bring glory to himself. And as he does so, the good that we receive, well, the good that we receive is that we can experience that restoration. Now, what does Paul do with all of this? What's the outworking of this? Why does all of this matter? Why do we want to know the heart of God? It's because of what I said way back at the beginning. If this is God's heart, then ultimately it's to be our heart. If God's heart is to see humanity restored to himself, then our heart is to be God's heart. Paul says it in verse 7. For this, what is the this? Verse 6 says it's the testimony given at the proper time. What is the testimony given? That Jesus Christ came into the world to serve as a mediator and a ransom to bring us back to God. Paul says, for this I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I am not, I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. We are to be a people who once we know this and know our God's heart, that we go out into the world and we proclaim this great and this glorious news that a mediator exists who has paid the ransom and he's done all that because God desires to see the lost saved to the glory of his name. So do you have God's heart? First off, is that what you are most concerned with in your life is that God would be made much of, that he would receive the glory? Let me go back to the one statement. There is How many gods according to the word of God? There's one God. Which means that you and I can't be God. (laughs) We can't be the ones who are at the center of our lives. We live to his glory. The way that we live to his glory is in and through his son, Jesus Christ, who restores us to that place where we understand and actually can live for him. But we don't keep that to ourselves, church. You hear me say it often. There are broken people all around us. There are broken people throughout the world. People whom God would see reconciled to himself And so like Paul, we don't just say, you know what, the message of reconciliation, that's just for a few. That's for the professionals. Paul would write to the Corinthian church and he would say, all of us have been given the message of reconciliation, the message that you can be restored. Let us be a people who go and share that message. Let's pray. Father, we are your children not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done, bringing us to yourself. You did not have to save, and yet you made the way. Lord, help us to be real about that. Help us to really see the fullness of that picture, that you exist for the glory of of your name. And when you save, it is for your glory. And you are righteous both in your judgment and in your salvation. And being righteous in your judgment and your salvation, Lord, knowing that you desire to see people restored to yourself, Lord, help us who have experienced the grace and mercy of Christ to live in that godly and dignified lives. But help us not to keep this message to ourselves, but to be serious about what you desire and to therefore then go and be proclaimers of this great and glorious news to the world for the praise and the glory of your name. We ask it. And all God's people said, amen. And amen.